You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Let's continue in our, our worship this morning as we go to God's Word. It's the end of the road for us in Exodus, uh, 15 weeks through 15 chapters, um, and we finish with a song. We finish here in chapter 15 where... Uh, If you remember last week, God's people had just passed through the Red Sea. The sea had opened for them. They walked through on dry land, and their enemies behind them were crushed by the waves that God closed in on them and killed every one of them, Pharaoh and his army and all the chariots and the horses and the horsemen and all the soldiers. God rescued them from slavery, and now they are on the other side of the sea. And they do the thing that, that many of us would do after our redemption, and that is they sing. They praise God. And so we come to Exodus 15, verse 1 through 18, and reading this, which is called the Song of Moses. He leads God's people in a song of worship. Let's bring our attention to God's word. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I'll sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. And the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard. They tremble. Pains have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone, a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You'll bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. Nice beat to it, isn't it? (laughs) This is the song of Moses. This is a song that they sing, a song of praise. I came across this article um, not long ago in Vogue magazine, uh, hear me out now, um, the article was titled, 53 Songs You Didn't Know Were About Other Celebrities. Apparently, it's more common than you think for 
music, uh, musicians and, and song artists to write songs as a way of communicating to other people. And they'll write a song kind of addressing maybe a conflict or a situation or they're calling somebody out. And we listen to it because we like the beat, but in reality, we're just really like this, this awkward third wheel in this really dysfunctional conversation that musicians are having with one another. They'll sing a song, and then that musician will, will hear it, and, and they will sing a song in response to that song, and they just kind of sing songs back to each other as a way to avoid talking with one another. In fact, it's not too difficult to realize there's a lot of hidden stories in songs that we listen to. Has that ever happened where you hear a song, maybe you were raised on it, you, you, you listened to it for years, and then you come to realize, that's what it was really about, I had no idea. I didn't know this was the conflict that they had with them. I didn't know this was about a, a relationship that went sour. I didn't know that this was what it was. I didn't know it was about, about this or that. And so in music and song, there's these hidden messages. There's these, these, uh, these subliminal things. The Song of Moses, I, I mentioned that because I want you to know the Song of Moses is nothing like that. <laughs> it's not like one of those songs. We know what this song is about. There's no hidden message in here. There's no veiled meaning. We know exactly what it's about. This is a, a God-oriented song. This song is about God, a song about God, who he is, what he has done, what he will do, what he promises to do, how he will accomplish all that he has said he will do. This song is about God, and the, the reason, the very reason it's sung is because of what God has done. It can be said that our whole calling in life is to sing a song to God. Our whole life ought to be a song of praise to God. The very reason that we exist is to sing about God. And the way that we go about our life is an act of singing. All of us are singing through our life a certain kind of song. What does it say? What are its words? 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All this has happened. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5 likewise says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our life is meant to be a, a song of praise to God, a melody in our heart that overflows into thoughts and actions and dreams that shapes our habits and our values, and that goes up to God like a song. Our whole life is a song. That's why we sing so much when we gather on a Sunday morning. Where else do you go and see a bunch of people, untrained singers, <laughs> singing together in a room? I mean, it just it doesn't happen. Maybe... Uh, you know, maybe like when we're, we're reciting like the, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance in a classroom or something like that, uh, maybe at a, at a sporting event, the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, but it's, it's so rare. Christians sing. God's people sing because we were created to sing. 
There's an entire book of the Bible called the Psalms that is just a songbook of, of praise and adoration and prayer to God, which are meant to be sung. Singing is our calling. When we sing God's pra- uh, His praises to the world, we act as witnesses of His grace. When we sing God's praises to one another, we're, we're encouraging one another and, and acting as, as disciple makers. We're discipling and sanctifying one another. When we sing God's praises to Him specifically, we're worshiping Him. This is why we exist, to sing. And so this song, Moses' song, acts as a, as a roadmap for our life, a roadmap for how we are meant to live and, and what thoughts are meant to be on our heart and how we are supposed to act. And I'd like to walk through this amazing song with you and draw out some some wonderful lessons for how we are to live in a way that can be like a song to God. The first is trust in God who does all things well. My son, happy Father's Day. Trust in God for he does all things well. Look at verse 1 and 2 here. We see this phrase, he has triumphed gloriously. I'm going to sing to God. Why? Because he has triumphed gloriously in my life. He has risen to the occasion. This, he has triumphed gloriously. It's actually one word in the Hebrew, and it means he, he has risen to the occasion. He stepped up to the plate. He did what he was supposed to do. Everything I wanted God to do, needed God to do, God pulled through. He succeeded. He triumphed. They were, incredible, they were in incredible need. They, they were enslaved. They were crying out to God in pain. They were a people about to be extinguished, extinguished, and God showed up, and he rescued them without failure. Look closely at verse 1. We see this disposition between God and their enemies. God has triumphed gloriously, He has risen up, and the horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. God came up, and our enemies went down. Do you see that disposition? God is being drawn up, and he succeeds, and all of our enemies, and all of our fears, and all of the wickedness that we were exposed to has been brought down. God gives his people what they need. He gives us exactly what we need. In verse 2, he builds on this. It says, the Lord's my strength. He is my song. He has become to be my salvation. He leads his people into joy. He presents himself as their savior. God is the man of war in verse 3 here. He is the man who conquers. He saves his people. He defeats our enemies. He stands up to our enemies. He gets between us and our, our, our most fearful nightmare and our biggest challenges, and God rises to the occasion. He does exactly what he said he will do. This is why we praise him. This is why we praise him, because God does all things well. He's not just a helper. He's not just a friend. He's not just one who, who tries to do his best. He is not one who does things uh, mediocre, It is God who does all things well, and we tell him that. We say, God, we sing to you because you do it perfectly without fail. It's an important order in the story of Exodus. God has a plan for his people. The plan is threatened by oppression and evil and wickedness and sin, 
they witness God saving them out of this evil and this horrible situation. God defeats their enemies, and they put their trust in God, and then they sing. Do you see this order? It's really important because it's the same order in our life. God creates us. He creates us for his glory and purpose, and he creates us with joy, with innocence. That plan is is thwarted by evil and sin. We trust in uh, the devil and the, and, the, and the promises of Satan. We trust in ourselves. We want to become autonomous and find our own way. We reject God and his promises. That casts us into a lifelong uh, downward spiral of pain and disappointment and agony, a slavery of our hearts to sin. God rescues us out of that through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. We see his work. We put our trust in him, and then we sing. Our lives are then a, a, an anthem of praise to God. The song is spontaneous. It's a joyful response to all that God has done. It is a joyful response to the fact that they have realized that God is a God of grace. They're standing, imagine this, on the, the banks of the sea, the other, the other edge of the sea. They see their, all of their enemies defeated, and they're just realizing this all in one moment, and they're realizing Look at what God just did. He did it. He did all that he said he was going to do. He saved us. And it wasn't a result of anything that we could do. And then they just sing. God's people were just redeemed. How could they keep their mouths closed? How could they keep their hearts silent? And so they sang. Another lesson in this song, not only that God does all things well, but the lesson is to put the adoration of God, not your admiration at the center of your life. Remember Moses in chapter 2 and 3, chapter 4? Moses, what do we know about him? He's a man who does not speak well. He is a man who doesn't like to speak. He is a man who is insecure. He's a man that's really worried about what people will think about him when he does do what God tells him to do. He is a man who's afraid of, kind of has some like, anxiety about uh, leading others. Um, we know him that he had insecurity about his skills and his ability, and now he's leading a song of worship to a people probably no less than two million. He's in front of them all, and he's singing, and he's leading them in a chorus of praise. Who, who is this guy? What a change. What a transformation. The same one that God said, I, I, I'm going to give you the words to say, and I want you to go tell, I want you to go t bring this message. And he says, please send somebody else. And now we see him singing with two million people the praises of God. And he's saying things like, the Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord is my salvation. He is my God. Not a new God. He is my Father's God. He's my God. He, has, he, is, he, belong, he is with me. He has presented himself to me. He is the God who always was, and I will exalt him. I will praise him. A life of praise to God can only happen when we stop exalting ourselves and we begin exalting God. A life of praise can only happen when we realize that we are not the center of our universe, that where we do not, like, 
We do not tie in everything to our experience. Moses was a man who was afraid and insecure and consumed with himself. And so he rebelled against God. He said, God, choose somebody else because all the reasons I have of why I don't want to do this. And now he's on the other side of it. He has seen the salvation of God. And he says, this isn't about me at all. This is all about you. You are my salvation. You are my rescue. You are the song that I sing. You're capable of, of doing everything that you have said. You're capable of taking a weak and insecure man and making him a man that is confident and courageous. And it's not because you have shown me that I am something special, but it's because you've shown to me who you are. You are a God of great power and love. We love to make the concern of our lives our primary focus in all that we do. Amen? <laughs> Am I right? We love to make how we feel in a certain situation the only thing that matters. We love to make how we are impacted by the choices of others the only thing that matters. We love to make our discomfort or our uh, lack of privilege or lack of opportunity as the only thing that matters at any given moment. We love to make our lives the center of everything that happens every single day. We're talking here about self-esteem. We're talking about how we view ourselves. And for a long time, it was commonly thought the reason that people act out, the reason that there's chaos in the world, that there's violence, that there's abuse, that there's crime, the reason was because of a, a too high self-esteem, a too lofty view that people had with themselves. And so people were just prideful. They were just consumed with their, their own self-interest, and so they became chaotic and angry and abusive. They were filled with pride. People that were like, you can't tell me what to do. I get to do whatever I want to do because I am awesome. And so they then went out and acted in wicked ways. And so many thought the reason that there is chaos in the world is because people think too highly of themselves. And then most recently, this has actually changed quite a bit. It's actually gone, it's shifted in the opposite direction. Now they're thinking, okay, maybe because that didn't work, we addressed pride and people, bad things are still happening. Now they're saying it's commonly thought that the reason that there's chaos in the world and abuse in the world and crimes is because people now have a too low self-esteem. You know, it's that phrase you've probably heard, heard hurt people hurt people. So the reason that there's abuse and violence and crime is because people are sad. And so if we just increase their self-esteem, right, it was too high and we had to knock it down, and now they're all sad and they're still doing the same thing. And so we need to bring them back up to the middle. So, so what is the answer? I mean, is are all of our life's problems the result of us being prideful or the result of us being dejected, depressed, and sad about who we are? At yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> The problem is we think way too much about ourselves. The problem is that we have become the center of our experience in our life. The problem is crime and, 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 and abuse and violence. We're trying to figure out, well, what is it about the way that we think? It is that we put ourselves and our admiration as the idol in our life. We are so preoccupied with ourselves and how things affect us 
We make it virtually impossible to live a life of praise when the only thing we think about is how we are doing in that very moment. And Moses says, you're my strength. You're my salvation. There's none like you. You are what matters. You are worthy of praise. And you care about me. He doesn't invalidate his insecurities. He doesn't invalidate his experience. He doesn't invalidate his identity as a real human person with real failures, real struggles, and with a real problem with his self-esteem. But he says, you are the answer. Knowing you, putting you at the center, center of my life, adoring you should be above finding admiration for me. Have you noticed the only time you ever think about your stomach is when there's something wrong with it? No one thinks about their stomach unless it's hurting, unless it's grumbling, unless it's turning, unless it's bloated or achy. But when it's, when it's any of those things, it's all you think about. You can't ignore your stomach when it is hurting. You can't take your mind, it's, it's constantly demanding something. It's constantly demanding until you bring comfort to this, you will not be able to focus on anything else. You have to alleviate the pain. You got to eat something. You got to do number two. You, gotta, you have to do something. That's what, that's what it's like to make ourselves the center of our lives, is to constantly have a distracted achy stomach that constantly demands its attention and constantly saying, you have to feed me, you have to feed me, you have to feed me. When we make our lives the center of our identity and our comfort and our joy and what happens to us, the center of everything, we will have to constantly feed that idea that it's all about us or we will never be satisfied. And we spend a lot of time doing that and we still find we are so unsatisfied. Moses is saying, I may be weak, but the Lord is strong. I've tried to save myself, but God is the only one who could actually follow through and save me. I wanted to be man worthy of admiration and praise. I wanted to be the hero of the story, and I tried to be the hero, and I failed miserably, and it sent me off into a, a, a wilderness wandering for 40 years. Moses is saying, people have negative opinions of me, but God's opinion of me is truly the only one that really matters. It is that God is saying, it's none of your business, Moses, what people think of you. It's none of your business what you think of you. What matters is what I think of you. And Moses' life is transformed. I'm weak, but he is my strength. I am in need of rescuing. He's the only one who could save me. People are hunting me down and saying bad things about me and hurting my feelings, but God has done everything he said he will do. And that causes me to sing like nothing else could cause me to sing. So our singing puts God in our hearts where he rightly belongs. When we praise him, when we turn our attention to God, it is an act of our will to take our attention off of our admiration 
and put it on the adoration of God. It is a choice that we are making to take ourselves off the throne of our ego and to make our life about God. See, the first three verses, Moses and all God's people are drawing attention to God they're, uh, for why they sing, for why they're there to sing. So they're talking about God. But in verse 4, they shift their attention from singing about God to singing to God. The language in the first three verses is he and him, and look at what he has done. And now the language in verse 4 shifts to you and your And really, verse 4 through 13 is all about the hand of God. It's all about what God has done for them. And now they are telling God specifically, here's why I love you. Here's what you have done. It brings us to our third lesson, that count the ways God has shown his saving work in your life. We should count those ways. We should enumerate them. We should think of them. We should sing about them. Moses in this song doesn't just say, God is great. He enumerates the way he is great. He adds them up. That was that awkward, really that long, awkward middle section in verse 4 through 11 that we read through. And and you're like, well, this is a strange song. He's just singing about all of these specific things that God has done. But it's important. Another way to say add them up or count the ways is like, it's familiar. Oh, how I love you. Let me count the ways. Let me tell you all of the ways I love you. If you want to praise God, you have, you have to break it down. You have to think it out. You have to stop and you have to think, how has God intervened in my life specifically and shown me his salvation? How has God been at work in my life? Because I know it's so easy to say, I know that God is great, but why am I still struggling in my heart? Why am I still not content? Have you counted the ways? Have you enumerated the ways? Have you thought back on your life and seen God's hand working miraculously throughout your life to bring you to salvation? When you think upon those things and you think intently on that, there's something wonderful that happens. You stop thinking about yourself. You stop thinking about how you feel and how you're hurting, and you start praising God for who he is and what he has done. God, you are powerful, you are glorious, but here is how you're powerful. Here is how you show yourself glorious. You help me when I'm struggling. Your hands are strong to guide me when I'm weak. When I feel friendless and lonely, you are a faithful companion. You defeat my enemies. You You advocate for my well-being. You defend my name. You send people along my path to bring me encouragement. You answer my prayers in these specific ways. You give me what I need exactly when I need it. Moses sees God as the source of all of these acts of redemption. The wind, the water, the waves, the seas that covered up the Egyptians. God is saying, your hand was in all of those things. You were the one that brought the wind. You were the one that defeated my enemies. You're the one that brought us to safety. You're the one that closed the mouths of those who are condemning us. All of these things come from the hand of God. They weren't coincidences. They were specific actions done by the hand of the God who holds us in his care forever. He spends so much time just recounting all of these specific actions of God. And then he comes to this conclusion and says, God, there's no one like you. 
And that's what happens when we think of God and all that he has done. We say, has anyone ever treated me that way like God? No. Has anyone ever loved me that well? No. Has anyone been a friend like that to God, to me? No one's been a friend like that. Has anyone comforted me when I needed comfort? No one like God. When we think upon God, we realize that he is in a class of his own, that he is separate from every other human experience we've ever had. And he loves us. The result is praise. We should count the ways he loves us. It's only happened once in my premarital counseling session, but when I've, I asked this question a lot, and this, thing has, this response I got only has happened once, and that's probably good. The question I ask is, what do you love about your fiancé? Tell me. List them out. I usually have to interrupt them because it just takes, to, you know, there's just so much sharing. There's so much gushing of love. But one time I asked that question, and the guy replied, you know, I guess I've never really thought about that before. Yeah. Public service announcement, ladies. Walk away. <laughs> you hear it's time to leave. Yeah, time to go with plan B, whatever that is. It's better to be alone. <laughs> we need to think it out. We need to count the ways. I'm sure you remember the movie Groundhog Day. Of course, Bill Murray is the character who wakes up every morning. It's the same day, Groundhog Day. He repeats the same day over and over and over again. And after spending years with this one particular wo woman, he tells her that he loves her. But for her, it's, this, it's just one day. But he has spent countless days getting to know her and things about her and enjoying her company and friendship. And he says, I love you. And she says, you love me. How do you love me? You don't even know me. He says, I know all about you. I know you like boats, but you don't like the ocean. You're a sucker for French poetry and rhinestones. You're very generous. You're kind to strangers and children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. That's a lot better than, you know what? I guess I've never really thought about it before. <laughs> what do you love about God? Well, you know, I guess I've never really thought about that before. Oh, he's good. How has he been good? Oh, he's, he's kind. How has he been kind? Oh, he loves me. How has he shown that to you in practical ways? Count them out. If you do that, your heart is filled with the praise, the fullness of God, the fullness of, of praise. Your heart then becomes an anthem. Your life becomes a song. And maybe your problems don't change dramatically in an instant, but you realize, but now these these problems, while they're still in my life, they are not dominating everything in my life. They're not dominating my thoughts. What has taken the place of those dominating thoughts? The gracious hand of God, the praise of God, the work of God in my life. And we begin to become less self-obsessed with our own self-esteem and how things are going for us, and we become more occupied and obsessed with God, whom there is no one like. What do you love about God? Tell Him. Specifically tell Him. This is what we do when we sing. One of the rubrics that we use in our choosing our songs, I don't even have to ask this of James anymore because he's just so good at doing it. If you can replace the word God with a girl's name <laughs> as a love song or a guy's name for someone you like, 
Let's not sing that song. Let's pick songs that speak specifically. Let's tell God what he's done, who he is, how he's rescued us. Let's sing songs that make it so clear that there's no human relationship like the relationship that we have with God because there is none like him. Think about it. Final lesson in this song of praise is to mark true praise with a deeper longing to be in the presence of God. It's true that, that praise is a spiritual activity. It's something we do, but, but that's not the point. The activity of singing and living a life of obedience and praise, it's not the end in itself. Salvation is not even the end point. Praise is not the end point. Our behavior is not the end point. Moses reminds us of the end point in verse 13. You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And in verse 17 and 18, you'll bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you've made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Moses is saying this. This is the point of everything. It's not our rescue. It's not our comfort. It's not our praise. The point of it all is you are drawing us closer to yourself so that we can be with you and dwell with you in your love forever. You're going to make a dwelling place where you will reside with us. You'll take up residence among your people. And the short-term reality of this for God's people was, it was Mount Sinai, it was the tabernacle that they built where God would dwell with them and make up the holy dwelling place. Moses is looking forward to this day where they will be with God forever in his presence and be filled with the fullness of his love. And, and that will make everything right. And Moses is looking forward to that day. And these short-term realities that they experience are just mile markers along the way to a greater fulfillment when God would take up residence in his son, when, sorry, when God would take up residence in human flesh. When the fullness of God would dwell with his people. The Old Testament is the story of God bringing his people home bringing them out of slavery, bringing them out of Egypt. The whole point of it was, as God was saying, I'm bringing you to me. And what is it when you find, when you find me, you find me, you're the fullness of love that casts out all fears, that never gives up, that always accomplishes exactly what it said it would. And this is still God's plan for his people today. His plan, he's still drawing you out. He's still bringing you home. In the New Testament, the Apostle John gives us this prophetic picture of the future dwelling place with God. And in Revelation chapter 15, just like Genesis chapter 15 in our passage today, they're singing. And the angels are singing two songs. Do you know what song they're singing? They're singing, the first song they're singing is the song of Moses, this song. In heaven, the angels are singing this song with that really good beat that we just sang, right? They're singing this song and they're singing what's called the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb is just like the song of Moses. It's a song of rescue. In Exodus 15, the song of rescue from Egypt and slavery. And in Revelation 15, there's singing again by the edge of a sea. But this sea is a sea of fire. And Christ has just defeated Satan and sin and death. And has casted it into the sea. And they're singing the song of the Lamb. 
in Genesis 15, the, sorry, in Exodus 15, the rescue came by this human redeemer, Moses. And in Revelation 15, the rescue comes from Jesus Christ. The cross and the resurrection are the objective demonstrations that God is for us. That God is a God who, everything, who does everything well. That pursues us and loves us. And it doesn't matter how we feel about ourselves or what sins are on our record that we can still sing. Because none of us are too far beyond the reach of his grace. Christ has given us a song to sing. The essence of the Christian faith is to see that Jesus is good enough and that, I, that we are in him through faith. It's possible to be a Christian and, and sing like a non-Christian. What do I mean? It's possible to sing out of tune. What does that mean? To praise God while standing on your own morals and character, your hard work. It looks pretty on the outside, but it's dead on the inside. To say thank you, God, and praising God, and yet living in fear of God's judgment, even though we've put our trust in Jesus. As long as you say to yourself, I, I'd like to be closer to God, but I'm just too prideful, or I'm just too weak, then you're denying God, and you'll never find satisfaction. There's times you'll think yourself better, and you'll feel good. There's times that you'll fail, and then you'll feel bad again. It doesn't matter what you're guilty of, or even if you have come within an inch of hell, it does not matter when it comes to being justified by God because of what he has done. When we receive the good news of Jesus on the cross for our sins, Jesus becomes our substitute. He draws us out of the bondage of sin and out of slavery. He brings us to safety, and we sing because of the rescue and forgiveness and redemption that we've received. The determining factor in our relationship with God is not our past or present, but it is Christ's past and present. And so let me leave you with this. To truly adore God, you cannot truly adore and praise God if you believe that his love and your salvation is based on something that you have done. We cannot praise him well. We cannot adore him truly. If we want to be people who praise God with our life, we must stand on grace in everything we do. It must be the song that we sing, that God is our salvation. And whenever we gather to sing on Sunday, that is what we're doing. Remembering this song, standing on grace that God is who he said he is, that he has done what he said he will do. He will remember his love to us, and he will never let us down. And so when we sing, we remember, we still long to be in his presence forever, and our hearts are oriented towards him. Jesus saves us, and he's drawing us closer to him.